Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. We're so glad you have joined us for this sermon. You can find all our sermons at our website, holycommunion.net. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please Amen. be seated. I don't know about you, but for virtually my entire life, today has been more about the 4th of July than its official designation, Independence Day. It marked the halfway point of the summer season at the swimming pool where I worked as a lifeguard in high school and college. It was a day that always began with the ritual blasting of Jimi Hendrix's Star-Spangled Banner. And it was a day that always ended with fireworks. Off the Alton Dam as a child, and more recently at the Arch downtown. Sunshine, water sports and ice cream, parades, tricolor bunting and barbecue, lame speeches by local politicians, VFW ceremonial salutes, and watching the annual televised celebration from the National Mall. Be sure the 4th of July is a marvelous holiday filled with festivities and fun. But I have to be honest, seldom do I recall spending much time considering the reason for the celebration. Independence Day seemed to be little more than the formal moniker for a midsummer fun fest. However, over the past decade, and especially the past five years, I found myself more deeply reflecting on the significance of this day. I remember the vision and personal courage required to wrestle autonomy from the rule of a monarch who claimed authority as a divine right. I recall the soaring rhetoric of the Declaration of Independence, its embodiment of enlightenment ideals and its aspirations for a nation not fully constituted. And I'm amazed, truly amazed, by the capacity of the diverse representatives to the Second Continental Congress to find the common ground necessary to actually ratify this Declaration of Independence. Yet in the same reflections, I've been reminded how vulnerable our democracy is. The recent and relentless pursuit by state legislators, for example, to limit voter access to the ballot box. The inability to make common cause across political divides to address the most pressing social, economic, and criminal justice reforms. And an insurrection stoked by lies, bigotry, and fear, inflamed by the very leaders entrusted with the governance of our country. We're not the first, and surely will not be the last, to struggle with issues of national identity, independence, and authority. Nor are we the only ones to resist leaders who overreach and challenge our Constitution and laws. And certainly, we're not alone in asking for providential guidance 
as we seek to become a more perfect union. Thankfully, today's lessons read just moments ago provide us with a meaningful context for exploring the concepts of nationhood, leadership, and authority. The prophet Samuel begins our conversation by recounting David's anointing as king of Israel. Recall that since the time of Israel's 40 years of wandering in its exodus from Egypt, they began to question God's capacity to manage their civic life. Frankly, they wanted a king, just like every other nation that surrounded them. But God resisted. After all, the covenant first made by God with Abraham was more than sufficient to provide Israel with the leadership it needed. But God's people continued to press for a king. Prophets wouldn't do, judges wouldn't do, Israel demanded a king. And God finally relented, empowering Samuel to anoint Saul as Israel's first. Initially well received, Saul eventually failed both God and the people he ruled, committing suicide rather than being captured by the enemy Philistines. But now, in today's lesson, with the rule of anointed monarch firmly established, the question of royal succession surfaced. Saul's son had died, and David emerged as the popular choice. Anointed by Samuel to unite the two kingdoms into a single state, and perceived to be the honorable leader that Saul had not. So enthralled were the people of Israel with David's potential that the prophet Nathan assured them that his dynasty would last forever. Sadly, just as Saul had succumbed to his human imperfections, so too did David, who orchestrated the battle death of his preeminent general, Uriah, so that he might share a bed with his wife, Bathsheba. From these tarnished beginnings, Israel's kings sadly continued to reveal themselves to be all too flawed, too often making bad decisions and incapable of maintaining Israel's sovereignty and regional power. Like the Israelites, how often we too long for a compassionate ruler, a decisive leader, a moral exemplar of the policies we promote as a nation. But also like the Israelites, how frequently we're disappointed by leaders who advance their personal interests at the country's expense, share little if any compassion for the least among us, and diminish the hopes of those who simply want to pursue the dream they believe to be embodied in the American character. On this day, when we reflect on our own national journey, David's anointing and the legacy of Israel's kings remind us of the unrealistic expectations we too often place on political leaders. The expectations we place for moral conscience without recognizing their human imperfections. 
Dear friends, I think what God asks of us as people of faith, of you and me, is to appoint and elect those who embrace an aspirational agenda consistent with the values our nation claimed in that Declaration of Independence. Even as we strive relentlessly for justice and equality, we're summoned to support those who, even though they are flawed, champion this noble work. And we're to be people of hope and prayer as we invite God's guidance in our civic life. Now, to be sure, informed, compassionate servant leaders are essential to responsible national governance. But so, too, is grounded, engaged, and pragmatic electorate. But as this morning's psalm reminds us, these are not the sole attributes of the nation our founders envisioned and that we try to achieve. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, proclaims the psalmist. In the city of our God is the holy hill. Summoning this text and several other similar references in scripture, Massachusetts Bay Colony Governor John Winthrop extolled his fellow Puritan colonists in 1630 to envision this novel experiment in local governance on distant shores as nothing less than establishing God's presence here on this turf. The city on the hill metaphor has been appropriated by generations of presidents to promote the concept of American exceptionalism and a divine imprimatur for our leadership in the world. But sadly, this national hope has too frequently devolved into self-righteous justification for the most offensive and counterproductive policies as we've regularly asserted a unilateral approach to our relationships around the world. From the tragic folly of Vietnam and Iraq, from orchestrating the coup toppling Iran's sovereign leader 70 years ago to interference in Central America's struggles for liberation and reform in more recent memory. And from the last administration's withdrawal from the World Health Organization to its border wall and cages. We've not only fallen short of our aspirations, but undermined our national credibility in the process. We've forgotten Abraham Lincoln's admonition to ensure that we are always on God's side, not to ask God to be on our side. Importantly, this psalm and our experience with the policies it has enabled remind us that a humble soul is at the heart of effective leadership. It's not my way or the highway, but our way. Or in the psalmist's rejoinder, Behold, the kings of the earth assembled and marched forward together. Finally, today's lesson from Mark's Gospel is a poignant reminder that the strength of our democracy will be measured by the dissent we welcome, the new voices we embrace, and the prophetic challenges we accept. 
After traveling throughout Galilee, preaching, healing, and working miracles, Jesus returned to his hometown, entered the synagogue where he'd been raised and began to teach. The response was immediate and visceral. Who does this guy think he is? Isn't this the kid we watched grow up? By what authority does he now presume to instruct us on God and Scripture? He's not much more than a child, <laughs> and he's a carpenter. But then came the real insult. The crowd referred to Jesus as Mary's son, rather than the more common son of Joseph implying, perhaps, that Jesus was an illegitimate child. But Jesus was unfazed. In fact, he not so subtly returned the insult. Back at you, he said. I knew even before I entered the synagogue that you weren't going to pay any attention to me. Clearly, those in the synagogue took umbrage at this upstart preacher barely an adult with no scholarly bona fides. Yet it wasn't simply Jesus' presumed lack of qualifications that offended him. It was his message because it was such a stunning departure from the religious and political thought of the day. The kingdom of God, Jesus proclaimed, is emerging in the here and now, not in some eternal heaven, but in the here and now, right before your very eyes, with you and among you. Jesus also said we're called to care for the least among us, not to succumb to the enticements of the wealthy and the powerful. He also said we're to meet the violence of empire with the open hands of peace. Jesus was the clarion voice of dissent, a new voice and make no mistake, a radical voice. Jesus, just as Israel, summoned us to hear him. And in so doing, we must engage with the prophetic voices of our time. The voices that demand equality across the spectrum of gender and gender identity. The voices that demand equal access to education, housing, and employment and the voices that demand hospitality for those fleeing the violence and repression of other governments and other countries. As we gather today with families, friends, and neighbors to celebrate our nation's journey and our hopes for the future, may we be especially mindful of what is required of us to pursue the ideals envisioned by our founders to encourage and support those who faithfully lead in the democratic and progressive tradition of our country, to engage others in the town square as well as the international arena with genuine humility and a recognition of our own need to learn from their experience and their perspective, and to not only be attentive to the prophetic voices among us but to invite them into public dialogue and decision-making, to make space for them in the nation we're trying to build. Indeed, by God's grace, 
we truly have much ahead of us and much to do. My hopeful prayer on this Independence Day is that we remember with sincere gratitude the dreams and struggles of those who came before us, even as we rededicate ourselves to the work of building a more perfect union. Amen.